Yeah, right. So short. So look, I, I'll be honest with you. I am a beginner investor, and uh, this is partly why I got you on the podcast because of your your experience. So I guess just just unpacking into that, uh, do, do you mind just? Um, I wouldn't mind like giving a bit of an educational lesson yeah, to, to the people. Yeah. Absolutely. So what we do at Seven Investing is long-term investing. We are not looking at, is this stock going to move up tomorrow? Because anyone who tells you that is lying to you. Like if somebody says, geez, every time this company reports good earnings, its numbers go up. Well, that might not be true. We just saw that with Apple. Apple had a blowout quarter and numbers went down. We've seen a lot of really strong companies report good numbers, especially in the retail space, because they're basically saying, yeah, the numbers are good, but we don't know what next year is going to look like. For good reason. We're coming out of a pandemic. So what we really do is we look at a company. What is the fundamentals? What What are their goals? Where are they going? And can they realistically get there? So if you sit down and you look at, let's, let's use Apple, because it's a really obvious example. Yeah. They're a $2 trillion company. Now, could you make the argument that there's not that much growth ahead for Apple? You could. If you look at Apple and say, but healthcare is a trillion dollar opportunity, and I think they're going to get it, then you could go, wow, there's, there's room for Apple to be much higher than it is. So yeah. that's sort of how we analyze a company. We're not looking at you know, the short term, like do people care today? So like people ask me all the time, like, oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on Disney because the Disneyland's reopening. Well, I'm bullish on Disney because of Disney Plus and that the fact that they own the top tier family vacation brand. It doesn't matter that six weeks from now, Disneyland's going to open at 25% capacity for only California residents. You really yeah. have to look at the long picture. And right now, that means getting rid of the noise. Like all of these people who are chasing these massive returns, like GameStop's not a good company because it's popular on Reddit. And you could have made an argument, you could make a light bullish argument for GameStop making a, a turnaround. They have good management, they have some money in the bank, but that's a turnaround where like maybe the stock should be worth double where it was a few months ago, not yeah. the stock should be worth you know a thousand times. So we turn a lot of that out. I, I have absolutely zero fear of missing out. So, okay, so just to unpack that a little bit, so your 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 primary your primary I'm assuming you're a fundamental guy as opposed to a technical guy. What, what is that? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a homework guy, which homework. Uh, so are, yeah. so so are all of us at, at Seven Investing. And yeah. just to give you an overview, so my name is Dan Klein. I am one of the about to be seven advisors. There's six of us now at at Seven Investing, and what we do is we each give our members our top conviction stock pick each month. So we study it like crazy. So I look at a company and I go, okay, you know, do I like the management? Do I like what they're going? And then do I really think this is the best place to deploy my money right now? So most of that is the fundamentals of the company. Now that doesn't mean I might not look at a company like say Zoom and go, oh, I love everything about this except for the fact of, wow, it's trading at a really high multiple. And even though I think 10 years from now, it's going to be in a great place. I'm not so sure I need to buy it today versus three years from now compared to some other things I look at and say, wow, there's a lot of pent up you know, demand. It might not happen in three months or it might happen like Disney where you like Disney, a pandemic hits and five years of growth happen in like 10 minutes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very unpredictable. It's, it's, yeah, the markets that, yeah, it's very, yeah, it's, it's very difficult in that, in that manner. Um, but I guess like, um, I guess speaking for so seven investing. So you you, you pick you pick uh, 
long-term growth stocks. That's that's a that's what I'm understanding. Yeah, we we, um, we pick all over the board. So all our, over the my, board, yeah. my experience is more let's call them like retail. Uh, I call them pop culture stocks, like tech yeah. stocks, but more the ones you're likely to have heard of. I'm not generally chasing, you know, oh that might be a hundred bagger. I'm finding really good companies. That, you know, sometimes for me, it's it's an elephant up a hill. I always talk about Costco as being that model. It's not going to triple in a week. But if you look at the 10-year chart, it basically goes steadily up. Every company has dips. There, there are points where really great companies like Microsoft were, were down 50%. Doesn't change the fundamentals of Microsoft. So that's really what we do. But we have two people on our team with advanced biotech degrees. And they're picking early stage companies. They might be small caps. They might be very, very risky. Uh, and we identify that. So like, if I pick a company that's very stable, well, we're going to tell you it's moderate risk. It's a it's a value play. It's not a growth, but what, whatever it is. So when you get our seven picks each month, it kind of really depends who you are. And this is true wherever you're taking market advice from. And I don't think there's all that many great places to take market advice from. But you need to look at what are my goals? So I'm 47 years old. I have a 17-year-old child. That's going to wow. be different in terms of the goals than my 30-year-old colleague who has, you know, I'm never going to retire. Who would retire from getting to do this for a living? But what if someday I can't work? So my retirement threshold is 65, 70, whatever it is. That's sooner. So my 30-year-old colleague might have 80% of his portfolio in fairly risky things where if one pays off, it is the potential to cover every other mistake. What I do is I buy some of their picks. I put some of my money every month into my younger, riskier colleagues' picks as a way to sort of hedge against my own personal conservatism. Now, that being said, I've been at Seven Investing for six months, and one of my six picks is very, very speculative and risky. So it's not to say that any of us have a style we always stick to, but you get a grab bag every month. Okay. And you... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you used to work at the Motley Fool. Was that? Yeah, I, that was, I, I, yeah. I spent six years getting an investing lesson from the brilliant people at the Motley yeah. Fool. Many of my friends, you know, are, are my lifelong real life friends are fools. And yeah, I started as a writer. I came from the business world. I was the the curator of the MSN Money app. That's now done poorly by robots, but it used to be done by by people. I was the first guy to do that. I then went to the Boston Globe, where I wrote business stories for the paper. So I was sort of adjacent. To the, the stock world, but Molly Fool was really my first entry to it. And they preach buy and hold investing. And you really learned the power of buying good companies. And over my six years, I'm more from being a writer who wasn't really focused on stocks, was more focused on the businesses, to someone who became, you know, very, very well versed. Like if you talk about cord cutting, I've been covering it for eight years. So I know the history of it. Really, I've been covering it for 25 years, if you want to go back through my history. <laughs> yeah. But you start to know things better. I cringe a lot when I watch someone who doesn't know anything about retail, who goes on TV and says, oh, the retail apocalypse is killing malls. No, it really isn't. 13% of, of sales were, were digital in the year before the pandemic. At the height of the pandemic, it was 20%. Incompetent management is killing incompetent retailers. Sears didn't die because of Amazon. Sears is dying. JCPenney is dying. Dillard's, lots of companies because they're not well run and they didn't pivot. That's yeah. something you truly have to understand. You know, if I ask people, it's something I do all the time. It's a trivia question we asked a lot uh, yeah. is, well, when was peak mall traffic? People will say like, oh, like 1992, 19, you know, 2001. Peak mall traffic was 2019. 
The issue isn't that people aren't going to the mall. It's that some of these stores may not capitalize. That's something you really have to learn over time in the market. We talk about that with investing. It's also true as someone who analyzes and picks stocks for a living. Yeah, well, I, I'm just assuming that this, this, to be a good investor, you have to be able to adapt to real world events like such as the, the online sale, such as the... Um, Pro, the uh, proliferation of you know online sales have now taken over retail so yeah um yeah you, ha you have to fundamentally understand that the world is moving to an omni-channel model so obviously mm. you know we're going to see pure digital sales maybe in the next three or four years will grow to 20 percent that yep. might be the top but that other 80 percent isn't going to be purely you go to a store and pick something up you might order something on your phone and pick it up in the store. You might be a Best Buy and see a 70-inch television and be like, I want this, buy it on your phone for delivery at your house. Or buy it from a person and have them deliver it. It's gonna be this really squishy world and you kind of have to immerse yourself in that world. Like, you know, people ask me a lot about like, you know, will the Disney theme parks come back? And is it absolutely <laughs> necessary to have been there recently to, to answer that question? Probably not. Does it help that I've been there recently and can see what the demand looks like right now? It does. So I believe you really have to throw yourself into the world. And that doesn't mean I can't take a company I know nothing about and research it from scratch and figure out if it's a good company. But back when I was at Motley Fool, I used to do that once a month with a colleague of mine and we would just have coffee and talk about companies that were way outside our wheelhouse. Now I'm lucky to have, you know, five soon to be six great colleagues that they might have done research on something and that might shorten my process because I can ask them the questions and sort of get that knowledge. But I think most people who are buying individual stocks, you really should look into the background, the depth of knowledge, because a lot of people are very superficial. I mean, how many people out there are picking whatever company it is in the gambling space or even adjacent to the gambling space and they just go, oh, sports betting is going to be this massive opportunity. It is, but it's also going to be a lot like like cannabis, where it's everywhere and it's cheap. And it's not necessarily going to mean that DraftKings or Fubo or any of these companies that are going to have gambling as part of their platform, they're not necessarily going to be major successes because it might become a commodity where you turn on ESPN or Fox Sports or any place there's sports, and there's just going to be 17 different layers of gambling. You kind of have to understand that to not get swept up into the easy narrative. How many people invested in cannabis who didn't understand that it's really easy to grow cannabis, and that's never going to be the business that makes money? It's always going to be the branding or the marketing or the pick and shovel place yeah yeah i'm definitely guilty of of, of investing in cannabis stocks but uh yeah look i, I think um, i just want to kind of unpack it a little bit and kind of bring it back to the investor's mindset uh i know this is not any financial advice i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to give any financial advice but i mean more of more um your i want to leverage off your experience so in terms of the investor's mindset, what do you think are some important traits for people to learn? Just characteristics or, or personal traits when looking at in the market? If you can't handle a 50% drop, don't invest in individual stocks. Like okay. it, every good company, not everyone, but most of them, if you pull out and look at a 10 year chart, you're going to see some crazy dip. So like Microsoft at like the worst of like Windows 8 had a big dip. But if you looked at their fundamental business, as long as they could recover from that, which they did fine, it wasn't going to be a long-term problem. So we get asked this all the time, well, why did something move 6% today? That's a pick. Should I sell it? Yeah. And a lot of times the answer is, I don't know. Like you look at it and you know, you want to 
Google and make sure like the CEO didn't die or that like some disaster didn't happen. But yeah, for the most part, short-term news doesn't matter. And that's often true of positive news. So when I, when I watch a, a conference call, what I follow from quarter to quarter isn't the results necessary necessarily. It's what did this company tell me was going to happen? Did it happen? And if it didn't, how are they course correcting? So if I'm watching, you know, retail company X, let's say Macy's, say that, uh, geez, we're investing in digital. We expect strong growth to women in digital. And then next quarter, they don't mention women in digital. That's a red flag to me that it didn't work or that something is wrong. So you want to, no company goes in a straight line. There's going to be hiccups, but you want a company that sort of owns the narrative and really sort of carries it forward. And you could see, okay, like they, they tried these eight things, six of them worked. One of the two that failed, they think they can course correct. The other one they're going to get rid of. And I tend to put a lot of faith in management that's very, very transparent. Are there any case examples um, that you can share you can share just for people to research or like i know it's not financial advice but just to kind of get get my own head around uh just like a good case example like i, I know you mentioned disney so i'm i'm, I'm assuming that yeah I'm, so, so disney is obviously a stock everybody knows and everybody knows, yeah, yeah. you know and you look at disney and you say okay wow it's up you know 50 percent in three or four months or whatever it is well, why is that? Now, Disney will be very volatile, down a little bit today. It was up a ton yesterday, like four or five percent. Yesterday was up on the sort of short term news that some of the parks are going to reopen. It's been up a lot because Disney Plus numbers have been great. So when you sit back and look at Disney, you go, okay, where are they with parks? Well, they used to do X billion. Do I think they can get back to that or more? I do. Disney Plus, they're at 86 million, I think, at the last uh, the last reporting. Can they get to 250 million? I think they can faster than they expect they're going to. Well, what's the economic re reality of that? You I, you do the math. You know, 6.99 a month times x amount of people. Well, but what if they take some films that would have gone to the box office? Maybe they'd cost 200 million to make, 200 million to market, and they do 800 million. That's actually kind of a break-even movie in terms of in terms of things. So, what's the math on taking that movie, not spending all that marketing money, putting it on Disney Plus for a while? Some of those movies are going to drive the needle. You're going to need less and less of that. So, eventually, as Disney, are you going to produce less content? And then let's yeah. compare it to Netflix. Everyone loves Netflix. So do I. But. Netflix has to throw a hundred shows at the wall. Disney just goes, has to go like, okay, like who's next in the Avengers? Like, will they do a, an eight episode series? Like what's a star Wars thing people wanted to know? Like, uh, I don't know. Can we give R2D to a show? Like he, he's cheap. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's really easy to look at the Disney model and see how strong it is. And I tend to, in a case like Disney where the upside is just so massive, I don't worry about the short term. Yeah. They're going to lose, $2 billion because the box office wasn't open in the past year. Did they make most of that or all of that up at Disney Plus? Probably. Did they lose billions of dollars in theme parks that aren't coming back? In some ways, yes. There's obviously some people who go every year or go often that didn't go. But a lot of people just took their vacation money and rolled it over. Like somebody whose kid yeah, moved yeah. from 11 to 12 still probably going to want to go to Disney. And my kid's 17. We go to Disney all the time. Like, you know, so yeah, I live in Florida, by the way. So it's not, not, not a particularly big deal to, to yeah. go to Disney here. Um, so you really have to look at it. But the other thing you have to do is you'll hear a lot of short-term noise. So let's take a company like Zoom, where we're not doing this over Zoom, but we, we started our conversation over Zoom. If you look at Zoom and you go, okay, 
This is their customer base. A lot of people have this idea, well, when there's a recovery, we're going to stop using Zoom. And that's silly. All businesses aren't going to start having every meeting in person. You're going to have a lot of meetings that were fully over Zoom pre during the pandemic that are going to be partly over Zoom after the pandemic. Uh, where I used mm -hmm. to work, sometimes I'd be in the building and I, I didn't work in the office, but when I visited the office, I might be on the fifth floor, not have time to get to a meeting on the second floor. And because every conference room has Zoom, I would just Zoom into the meeting. A lot of people are going to do things like that or say, I have the sniffles or I'm getting a refrigerator delivered or my kid has a soccer game at five this afternoon and they might not go to work one or two days a week. But that's good. So people aren't going to cancel Zoom. But then you have to look at, well, what's their growth going to be? And is it going to stall for a while? Or is it going to take a very long time to become like a strong growth company? And then you can argue for or against owning the stock. But the short term of, oh, the pandemic is going to be over soon. This is now a bad company. Those are silly arguments. Like, there's a lot of stuff. Do, are we really pining to go wait three hours in a doctor's waiting room? Or are we still going to use telemedicine when this is over? Like, you know, mm. we're... we're we're going to eat out more and get less food delivered, but I'd argue that food delivery is a bad business no matter what the situation is. So. Okay, so you're against food delivery. I love I use it four times a week. It's not an economically viable model. So right. if you look at companies that have done it well, there's pretty much one example. It's Domino's. Like they built their own network. Their product is inexpensive. It keeps relatively well. If your pizza's cold, it's not hard to heat it up. Whereas Grubhub, Uber Eats, DoorDash, they have no pricing power. They have a lot of consumer mistrust because they do a pretty bad job. Uh, here's what happens universally across those apps if they forget to deliver you something. They give you a partial refund. So the example I'll give, and I forget which one it is, let's call it Uber Dash Mates, or it doesn't matter. They all have this policy. We ordered from, I think it was Cheesecake Factory, three of us in the house, two entrees showed up. I don't want my $22 back I want them to send somebody to go get my missing entree. I don't think when you have that big a customer service disconnect, you can ever fix that. So I don't think when you have non-transparent pricing, when, when I order from Instacart and I go to my grocery store or, or wherever it is, or Total Wines and Liquors, or wherever I'm happy to get, get stuff from Instacart, if the prices are higher, it tells me these prices are higher than if you went into the store. Grubhub, mm. Uber, Uber Eats, DoorDash, they don't do that. So some places they're marked up, some they're not. It's just a very sort of sleazy business without good customer service. If somebody came in and truly had great customer service, it would be expensive. Would you pay a premium for that? Maybe. Uh, but I look at it, at, it's a lot like mobile phones where you need a T-Mobile. You need someone to come in and say, we're going to do everything differently. And they're all waiting for this holy grail of like uh, driverless cars. How does a driverless car exactly get the food to my door? Might get it close, but I still have to go outside. And in the pandemic world, that's a minor inconvenience because we already have to do that. When I used to live in a building up until a few months ago, you know where I want the food? Delivered to my door by a person who knocks and hands it to me. And there's a lot wrong with those businesses, but people will sort of look at the, the narrative, the common story of, but everybody uses DoorDash. That's true, and <laughs> but they don't make any money. Yeah. So it's like, show me what the Uber and Lyft as well, services I love, I'm glad they exist, but how on earth could you be losing billions of dollars when you don't actually pay the drivers? Like it, it, it's, it's a, some of these businesses that seem like they're great businesses are bad models. And then there's companies you've never thought about. And I'll give one that I, I've done a couple of podcasts on that, that I'm not an investor in, but it's something I've absolutely thought about investing in, Tractor Supply. 
a retailer you've probably never heard of if you don't live in a semi-rural area that has a massive customer base that it's absolutely essential to. Again, not one you've thought of, not one you've heard of, but one that ha you know, has real potential. So that's why you need people like me who spend 10, 12 hours a day or whatever it is, you know, researching things. Researching, yeah. Well, um, I guess I'm kind of finding a bit of a theme here, like uh, like being a consumer, you, it's actually a doorway to becoming a good investor because, well, yes and no, but I mean, like, as you said, you, 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 you're very aware of all the pitfalls of all the, uh, the, the food delivery services and that, that kind of serves as a foundation to make your analysis, which I found quite interesting, yeah. So it's a big part of my process. It's not the, oh, look, I, yeah, I, own, yeah. I own some shares of companies that are not products I use, but I do think the average first time investor who really wants to research a stock, a great place to start is what are the essentials in your life? And if you're like, you know what? I use an iPhone and I go to Starbucks every day. Well, if you start reading the fundamentals of those companies, you go, okay, Apple's a really strong company that's moving more and more of its revenue into service areas, which makes it less dependent on the iPhone in some ways. Starbucks has a massive growth opportunity in China, has a massive growth opportunity at retail with its Nestle partnership. Okay, those are most companies that are really important to me that are great investments. But then you might look at, uh, you know, maybe you use a Keurig every day to make your coffee. And you look at, uh, I don't even know what they're, are they Keurig Dr. Pepper now? They've changed names so many times uh, in going public and going unpublic. And you might look at their business and go, ooh, there's a lot of backlash. They don't make that money per pod. Uh, the coffee's not that good. Like, like and, and yeah, it seems great. Oh, they're also tied to Dr. Pepper, which is the fourth rate brand. Like, and then you might go, okay, I love this product, but it's not what I want to invest in. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, I love the product and then, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, which is no longer publicly traded, but when it was, it was like, okay, I, I enjoy the product. I like getting a coffee at, at Dunkin' Donuts from time to time. But then when I looked at sort of their model and the lack of franchise models are often good. But Dunkin' Donuts didn't do a great job in making sure you had the same experience from restaurant to restaurant. So it's one that I might have liked, but when I started digging into it, maybe I would have chosen. In fact, I did choose to stay away. That can be true of even obscure things. You know, I, I'm not wearing glasses at the moment. Like, where did you buy your glasses? Who owns that? Who, who sold you a car? Well, like, Carvana is one. I absolutely love the product but it's too easy to duplicate. Good customer service, fair prices on used cars. Yeah. Now, now you have Vroom, which is a Carvana copycat. So I love Carvana as a customer. I probably don't want to own it as a stock because it's just not that hard to do what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, how did you get into investing? How did you get into stocks? Yeah. So it was a weird, slow journey. When I worked at Microsoft, um, I had a boss who was just super into stocks. He was on the West Coast uh, and he would call me first thing in the morning. And that was not normal because Microsoft is kind of a two-tiered structure. They have their employees, their FTEs, and they have what I was. I was like a permanent contractor. So like right. your job's pretty secure, but you don't have all the benefits. And it's pretty rare for a top level, like a vice president level manager to interact much with the contractor. But my boss would wake up and he was so excited by what was going on. He'd call and he'd have all these ideas for what I should put on the site. So by force, I just started having to watch like Bloomberg eight hours a day, which is like kind of the most neutral finance. You know, they're not screaming and yelling like, like CNBC is. Um, 
And then I really started reading and learning it. And, and then when I went to Boston Globe, I started knowing more and more about it, doing more original reporting, uh, picking stories on the boston.com business page. And then when I went to Motley Fool, I was actually hired for a project that was to expand Motley Fool beyond stocks. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a, a section called the business. And the idea was I'd write about companies and that would inform you about sort of their stock, but I wouldn't be making stock analysis. I wouldn't be saying this is happening and that means the stock's going to go up. It would be more like this is happening and I think that's a positive. Uh, and that slowly morphed into getting more and more confident. And then for the past two years, I've been I, I pre-joining Seven Investing, I did a lot of appearances on uh, on market foolery and, and industry focus and, and pretty much all of the Motley Fool podcasts. And I worked a lot with a colleague, an amazing investor named Emily Flippin, uh, and we started doing shows together. And she started saying, why don't you work on one of the investing services? You clearly can do this. And that was the first person in that ecosphere who said, like, yeah, just because you don't think of yourself as a stock analyst, you're a stock analyst. Like, that's that's what you're doing. You're just not. And really, the my, my boss now, Simon Erickson at, at Seven Investing, our CEO and founder, he saw that same thing. And when the company started, he had asked me, and I waited about six months to join. And that wasn't because I didn't believe in the company. It was because at the time, uh, I'd always wanted to do broadcasting. And Motley Fool had started doing Motley Fool Live, which was a 10-hour-a-day television service. And I was getting to host you know, up to four hours a day of live television, which to me was wow. like kind of my dream come true. And it was also an amazing learning experience because when I went over to 7investing, where we do 7investing now, a live show uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon Eastern, I, I all of a sudden had a thousand hours of recent live hosting experience, you know, and the ability to sort of, I'd always been in broadcasting, but I really was like a razor's edge ready to go. So it's all a journey. A lot of people ask how to get into it. The first part is doing your homework. And every teacher I ever had who I never handed homework in for would, would find this hysterical. Um, but a lot of my day is spent reading. A lot of our days are spent, you know, hey, we saw this thing like, you know, on tomorrow's show, uh, we're talking about non-fungible tokens, a term I hadn't heard about till about three weeks ago. Oh, that's now, that's now, all, that's now <laughs> all the rage. So people on yeah. our team have done the interviews, done the reading, done the homework. And it's really, you know, what if this is investable? What if this is, is buying Cabbage Patch Kids or Beanie Babies or, or baseball cards or, or whatever other risky collectible you could buy? So, so for, for me, so, that's... Sorry to, sorry to jump in. So, so, yeah, so for those that aren't aware of N NFTs, um, what, what are NFTs? So I am by no means the expert on this. I, I am merely the host in this particular instance. But an NFT is a one-of-a-kind digital asset. So the, the joke I made on our on our Slack today was we were discussing them is anything could be an NFT. So let's say I get a famous person. And the example I had was Mr. T. Mr. T is famous for saying, I pity the fool. But yeah. what if I got Mr. T to do a video where he did other people's catchphrases? So I could get Mr. T to do Urkel's catchphrase sell that as a one-of-a-kind thing. I sign a contract with Mr. T that he's never allowed to do that again you know, on video, and I sell it to you for $150,000. Is it worth $150,000? It's art. It, I mean, it isn't, but it trades like <laughs> art. So if, if you think there's value to it, so the NBA has been selling highlights uh, as NFTs, meaning 
there was this amazing dunk and I am the only person who owns this video of it. Like, and I'm not sure how that works with broadcast partners or, or rights, but you know, I could create an actual work of art. I could create a digital painting and sell that to you as an NFT. And it's, it's very much a collectibles market. What's the value? The value is what the next person will pay for it. It's like a painting might be worth $30 million, and then it comes out a week later uh, that the artist was was just copying his work from someone else, and all of a sudden your painting's worth nothing. Uh, and that can happen with NFTs. That certainly has happened in the collectibles market. I, I spent two years running a giant toy store, and we, we had a baseball card section. And a card that might have, in 1985, been worth thousands of dollars uh, might have been worth nothing because of the steroid scandal or something right. like a, a rare Babe Ruth card might have gone up a hundred times in value. And again, it's only worth what someone would pay for it. So someone would come into us and they'd say, this book says it's worth $1,200. And I'd say, okay, I'll give you $100 for it. And they would say, what do you mean? And I would say, well, I have to sell it for it to be worth that. And I might be sitting on 20 cards that are worth $1,000. And until I actually can sell those cards, there's no real value there. So that's what the NFT market is. It's really early. There's a lot of room for cowboys and, and scams. It's really exciting for digital content owners. And there's gonna be very legitimate things like, you know, sort of like if you own a Simpsons animation cell, it's a one of a kind thing and it has no real value, but maybe it's worth 50, $100, whatever it is. But if it's a famous scene, maybe it's worth $1,000. You're gonna see things like that where, where markets are created and real value is created and content holders have just another way to make money, which in this day and age as content creators, it's not that easy to make money. Yeah, it's definitely not easy to make money. And it, it, it just, the whole concept just seems a little bit overwhelming for me because I mean, it's not tangible. It's, it's, it's nothing we can see right in physical reality. It's, it's, it's all in the ethereal, which yeah, and, and I find it hard to kind of digest. Yeah. So I look at it the way I would look at like buying a Funko pop. Like if I buy a baby Yoda Funko pop, I'm buying it to put it on my shelf. I'm not buying it with the hope that 10 years from now there's a shortage of them and it's worth a ton of money. And I'll, people are smart now. So I don't, I think it's still a magazine. When Maxim Magazine first came out in the 90s, uh, late 90s, people all saved the first issue because, like, oh, this magazine's huge. And the first issue never had any value because people started to realize that things have value. So the, the old days of like mom throwing away your baseball card collection. That's kind of gone. So if you view an NFT as like, wow, I got this a one of a kind digital asset and it brings me some joy to be able to look at or show it to people, that's worth whatever it's worth for you. But if you're investing in my ridiculous Mr. T catchphrase scenario, you're assuming that a greater sucker is gonna come along and pay more for that. And that to me is very, very tricky. So I would look at this as much more of a uh, mass market for, you know, much like Funko or, or baseball cards where you're buying things that are technically unique, but they're low value. They're always going to be low value. And it's really about your collection and sort of how much fun you have looking at them or owning them. Not this idea that you're going to invest in something and it's going to be like, you know, retirement savings, you know, but that being said, I'm not a cryptocurrency guy. We are partnered with CryptoEQ, a, a wonderful company that invests in that space and, and tells you where to invest. For me, if I can't explain it to you, I probably <laughs> don't want to own it. And I don't All understand right. why Bitcoin goes up or down or what it is or how I might use it to pay for something. And it gives me a headache to think about it. So I'm just not going to buy it. Mm. 
from yeah from the from the investors mindset it, it just for me yeah, it's 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 very hard to under yeah rationalize it yeah from that sense yeah it, it's uh because how do you how do you explain the, the the it's just i feel like it's it's based on emotion it's it's all based on emotion well most of it is based on, on emotion the 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 price fluctuation so uh collectibles what, what, have, have always been based on emotion and look i i have a uh, a, a card my brother gave me he worked at the nfl players association and it's a a you a little piece of a used game worn tom brady shirt and at various points i've seen similar things worth you know selling on ebay and who knows if they're sold you know for for over a thousand dollars but i like owning it i don't care that it's worth a thousand dollars my brother didn't give it to me because it might be valuable he gave it to me because he knows i'm a, a tom brady fan like I, I i i have collectibles now someday might my son go Oh, you know, dad died a couple years ago. Like, what am I going to do with all this stuff and, and find that there's a market for it? But that's a secondary benefit. And, and you know, will I own an NFT? Probably. I'll own some sort of ridiculous Simpsons <laughs> or, or, or Patriots, but not yeah. as an investment. And with Bitcoin, you know, tread very carefully. If you're going to own something that is that fluctuates that much, don't do it because you know you, you think it's going to go quote to the moon do it because you know maybe one or two percent of your portfolio there's enough smart people out there who believe in it that that might be worth it but in my case like i want to understand what i'm investing in for the most part do you think it'll hit zero um i don't know enough to to say yeah, that yeah, like, yeah, don't know but, yet, like, yeah like do i think bitcoin will hit zero probably not do i think there are other cryptocurrencies that are ridiculous and will hit zero yes possibly um you know we've heard a lot about the retail investor and manipulating a stock price or a, a coin price is generally not long-term sustainable so like if you're buying into amc you know the movie theater company that it's a miracle isn't bankrupt and its eventual future is almost certainly bankruptcy. If you're buying into that because a bunch of people are bidding up the price, here's what you don't know. You don't know when they're gonna stop bidding up the price. They don't tell you when to sell. They'll do their, hold the line, we're taking on hedge funds. They're not taking on hedge funds. It, it's a pump and dump that that's just has better marketing and PR. And again, if you truly believe that AMC could turn it around. I don't know how you could possibly believe that, but if you do, you might look at the price and go, well, I would have wanted this six months ago, but why do I want it now? We've seen a lot of these ridiculous things. People buying Hertz in bankruptcy when almost every case with a bankruptcy, the stock still trades until the bankruptcy gets revolved and then individual shareholders get wiped out. They almost always go to zero. There's a lot of really, really bad advice out there. And that's sort of why I do shows like this, why I'll appear anywhere that'll have me. The individual investor can make money if they rec recognize that they have one advantage. That advantage is time. <laughs> if you buy a good company and hold it for a long time, you're gonna be great. If you bought, you know, people always ask me, this SPAC, this IPO, should I buy it? And I'll say, if I look at Amazon and I bought it three quarters in instead of when it IPO'd, it's an immaterial difference in how rich I would be from, from buying that. So if you look at an IPO, you don't know anything about it. You know very, you know like a, a, a polished set of one-time information. If it's a SPAC, you know almost nothing. Why not wait two or three quarters of earnings calls and earnings reports until you could go like, hey, how does the CEO handle negative feedback? How does the company handle something that goes wrong? Not, 
oh my God, this is the next, you know, digital gaming platform and, and some jerk on the internet likes it. So like, I better get in. That's not investing. It's, it's, it's playing games. And I, I often say, I use this example a lot. The worst thing that can happen to you as a gambler, and, and I am a, a, a blackjack player, which I don't consider gambling because it's all numbers. Um, but if you go in and play roulette, you put your money down at 11 and 11 hits, you are going to get the false narrative that roulette is a game you can win money at. Roulette is not a game you could win money at. The house edge is unbelievably high. So it, yeah. it is something you play purely for adrenaline and for fun with money you know you're going to lose. And that's what happens when these young investors come in and, quote, the stock market always goes up. And then they panic when you have a three-day correction that is then itself corrected on the fourth day. So mm. know what you're doing. Don't buy because, you know, your barber or your friend or, you know, or, or, or some guy on a lifestyle website tells you what you should be buying. Um, you know, it, buy, you know, look, you probably know what the good companies are. It's not hard for the mm -hmm. average person to figure out that Microsoft and Starbucks and Disney are good companies. Like, yeah. You know, if, if you look at McDonald's or Domino's, you could probably figure out that those are pretty good companies. Now, it gets tricky after that. You know, is Restaurant Brands International, which own Popeyes and Burger King, a good company? Eh, I'm not so sure. It's not as obvious. But you don't have to be crazy. You just have to be steady. So if you're young, you put $100 in the market a month and you buy fractional shares of good companies, always think about what you're buying. Don't buy penny stocks because you can own a bunch of shares. Buying penny stocks is like buying $2 wine. Is there occasionally $2 wine that's good? It's technically possible, but I can only think of like three or four cases of true penny stocks that became successful, much more valuable businesses. Yeah. You don't need it. It's exhausting. I, I have to look at my portfolio every day because it's my job. If it wasn't, I'd look at my portfolio once a quarter. Like it's just, it, it's not relevant. No, nothing big changed at Costco or Disney in the last you know month. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm really understanding the theme that it's it's very difficult to become rich overnight. It's this is definitely a long term game, and I think I fall victim to this trap. I'm a young investor, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I I'm always the the carrot is always dangling in front of me, you know, um, to make quick earnings. But I know that that. It's just a pitfall. It's not. It's not a good mindset to be in. Yeah. Historically, the data shows the more you trade, the more you lose. So you know, right, nine, yeah. ninety-seven percent of day traders lose money. Of the other three percent, the vast majority of them just break even after the various tax costs and other things associated. So yeah, if you have a lot of money. You could subscribe to you know Jim Cramer's newsletter that tells you ten moves to make every day. You have to have money, and you also have to not work because you have to make the moves at the right time. So for most of us, like people ask us all the time, "Hey, I see that your pick last month is up six percent. Is it still good to buy it?" And we say we don't we don't set price targets. We don't tell you. We'll tell you if something has gotten so high that that we no longer consider it a buy, but. That's never happened in our one year of it existing. So in general, we only issue a sell order if something massively fundamental has changed. You know, the CEO quits and the new CEO is someone who we don't like on a historical basis. Or Starbucks announces we're getting rid of coffee. We're becoming all Diet Coke all the time. Okay, well, that fundamentally changes my thesis. But even at Motley Fool, at their core 
uh, they analyzed all the trades they made across their core services. And one of the things they analyzed is if they never sold a single stock, they actually would have done better, even including selling the clear, obvious losers. So generally, buy and hold forever. And when I say forever, I mean buy until you get hold until you get to where you wanted to go. So if part of the reason as a younger investor is you say 10 years from now, I want to buy a house or a vacation home or pay for college. When you get there, then, then you sell some stocks. Well, what do you sell? Maybe sell your, your losers. Maybe sell your companies that have sort of reached the end of the line and, and you think are going to be stagnant. I have one colleague that laments that he sold some Tesla for the down payment on his house. And I would argue you invested in the first place so you could buy your dream house. You have your dream house. It doesn't matter that Tesla has gone up after that. You, you achieved the goal you yeah, were trying yeah. to achieve. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to quickly touch on the the idea of uh, dollar cost averaging as well. Do you, um, are you yes or no? So yes, overall, it's it's definitely something my my colleagues think about more than I do. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's more about as I'm investing every every week or every other week, depending on when I when I decide I'm going to make some buys. I'm generally looking at either what's something I feel great about owning that I don't own, or what do I own that I could kind of get at a deal. So there have been a couple of things uh, in the past few months that are picks of mine where I looked at it and went like, why is that stock down 30% today? Oh, there's no reason? Okay, I'm going to deploy some capital. I'm going to buy it. So do I track it out the way some of my colleagues do? I don't. Uh, I sort of just rely on my my portfolio, uh, you know, I use TD Ameritrade, which is fine. You know, there's no differences between most of them. Um, doesn't allow fractional shares, which is frustrating. But I'll look and see, okay, where am I on this stock? Uh, ooh, I'm up 69% since I've owned it. At one point, I was up 110%, and that's because I bought in more shares at a higher price. Uh, so I sort of mentally track it. I know some of my colleagues actually spreadsheet it and look for buy-in opportunities. For me, there's just too much great stuff out there. I'm not... I'm not overly worried about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I think I might end the the, the show there, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Dan. And uh, yeah, I guess how can people reach you? How can people, if there's anything yeah, you want to promote? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So seven investing is seven. The number seven investing com. Our core service is a. Uh, seven picks a month for $17, or you can pay $170 a year. Uh, that's two months for free. We also do Seven Investing Now, which uh, is a live free show that we do on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can get that pretty much anywhere on social media. You can go to our YouTube channel. You can follow us at Seven Investing on Twitter. You can follow me at Worst Ideas 7 on Twitter. I'm a fairly enjoyable follow. Um, and we want everyone in this tent. One of the things we really talk about a lot is investing isn't scary. It's relatively easy. Anybody can do it. It's not just for rich people. And it's the best way someone who just works hard and has a good life can become rich to a point. You know, are you going to become a billionaire? Probably not. But are you going to retire with seven figures in the bank and be able to make choices? Yeah. If you make small bets early on, I, bets is the wrong word, small investments early on, that piles up. And as you get older, you can really see 
I wish when I was in my 20s that somebody had set me aside and been like, look, if you just put $100 a week or a month, you know, depending how little I was making as a journalist at the time, if you just put that small amount away, when you're 40, wow, look where you're going to be. When you're 60, you're going to be in a command. But I didn't really start investing until my early 40s. So even then, I've still made great gains. It's going to help my retirement. Um, you know, my ability to, you know, my wife and I own a, a modest vacation home and are, are looking at, at, at upgrading that. You know, a lot of things in my life have been powered by investing. So we want more people to do that. We want the person who's made the day trade mistakes because we've all made those mistakes to yeah. really come and learn about buy and hold investing and sort of, you know, make that fun. I understand it's not all that fun to buy Disney and hold it for yeah. 20 years, but yeah. you know, it's fun at the end of that 20 years to be able to go to Disney whenever you want because you own a house that's near there. Like, uh, you know, and that's sort of my personal, it didn't take 20 years, but that's my personal situation. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. All right. Well, thanks guys. And uh, 